Well, I've been wrestling more than a bit uh, this week about what I needed to say to you this Sunday, because our set passage was not that passage that I just read to you. It was the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 6. And I spent the week, frankly, worrying that I hadn't explained 1 Corinthians 5 to you fully enough or well enough. Um, Those of you who were here will know that uh, we considered how Paul deals with a case of serious sexual immorality and he urges them to excommunicate the guilty man. We had it in the passage we just read. Expel the wicked man from among you. But what I've been concerned about is that I didn't really explore the range of what the Apostle says in that chapter. What's been bugging me, for instance, is imagining someone who's who's not a Christian listening to, um, uh, to, to what I said and thinking to themselves, that's exactly why I'm determined that the Christian voice should be minimised in Britain. It's bad enough that they enforce that strict morality amongst themselves. But give them an inch and they will want to enforce that uh, throughout the whole country and oppress other people who frankly just don't believe what they do. Or I was thinking of perhaps the Christian, actually, who uh, um, sat there nodding solemnly and thinking seriously about the seriousness of the the moral issues that we were talking about and and they concluded that it just reinforced their sense of need to campaign for Christian principles to be rolled out uh, and and, and reintroduced into uh, this country. If you're reasonably well informed, you'll know that... um, Britain's history has been profoundly influenced by Christianity. But that has not all been happy. It's not surprising, actually, that non-Christians should get anxious when preachers like me talk so seriously about the importance of moral discipline because the history of the church in this country and in other parts of the world has been very much of Christians imposing, often oppressively, their views on reluctant others. Most Christians today would would, uh, disavow, I think, outright oppression or discrimination against uh, people who aren't Christians. But they'd still feel basically it's our Christian duty to, uh, to see as much Christian morality as is possible applied to our nation. Nearly all the um, com- public communications by Christian organisations that are involved in politics in this country, for instance, take that basic simple view, as far as I can see, as far as they communicate, they are fighting for Britain to remain a Christian nation. And understandably, the wider world is distinctly anxious about that. A few months ago I went to see um, our MP, Andrew Smith, East Oxford's MP, to appeal to him concerning an area where government 
at the moment is imposing non-Christian standards or threatening to on on Christian organisations and churches. And I appealed to Andrew Smith for toleration of churches and Christians. And Andrew Smith, he sat back in his chair and he looked at me knowingly and he said, you're just saying that because you haven't got any power any longer, aren't you? When you were a majority, you were very happy to impose your views on people like me. And now that you're a minority, you're squealing. Seems to me, he said, in a democracy, we have the right to impose our views as the elected government on people whether they like it or not. And so began a conversation with Andrew Smith and subsequently a correspondence with him, the substance of which I want to try to explain to you this morning. I want to try to explain to you why, actually, I don't believe the Bible does give us permission, willy-nilly, to simply impose our views on the wider world. I believe the Bible actually sets out quite clearly a distinction between the way the church should conduct itself as a church and the way actually the the Bible expects nations to conduct themselves as nations. The church, says the New Testament, is a voluntary gathering of people who subscribe together to Christian faith and live together and commit themselves to live together by the teachings of Scripture. The world, says the New Testament, or the nation, is a collection of people of all sorts of faiths and none who must try to live together as best they can with peace and as much peace and justice as possible, but acknowledging that they do not all share a common conviction in every area of morality. The Bible's vision for a nation, at least as I see it, is called by some people principled pluralism. That's the first point there, Peter. One more click. It's called pluralism because it acknowledges and tolerates a variety of faiths and beliefs and lifestyle, and it's called principled because it's not, it's not just a, um, it's not just a complete freedom for everybody to do as they wish. That way lies anarchy. But it's a carefully um, organised and managed um, system which maintains liberty of diversity as well as limiting the, um, the freedoms of people in such a way that they do, so that they do not harm the weak and the vulnerable and minorities. I want to draw out for you from Paul's observations in verses 9 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 5 that picture Paul is very, very clearly if you were here last week you won't be in any doubt Paul has very clearly said that the church must discipline itself according to Christian 
moral um, standards. But after explaining that with massive clarity and force, he then goes on to say this in verse 9. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Now, I'm writing to you, you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, anyone who says they're a Christian and is sexually immoral, immoral because they are denying the faith that they claim. But, verse 12, what business is, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Verse 13, God will judge those outside. You just can't impose Christian values in a simple, simplistic way on the wider world, he says. You'd have to leave the world to do that. You know, some people have, uh, have, have, uh, have, have done that and more or less had to leave the world. But Paul says, actually, the way that Christians engage with the wider world is that they have to rub along, rub shoulders with, get along with people of widely different visions. The Amish people in America um, have decided that uh, they should withdraw from the world almost completely. But that doesn't seem to be the biblical vision. The biblical vision is a vision for coexisting in a mixed society. Paul has a very clear um, understanding of the good purpose of government in his writings. Romans 13, for instance, he insists that governments are appointed by God to do you good. It is a high calling, then, for a Christian to be involved in this wider role of government to do us good. Indeed, actually, um, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, you see um, figures like Daniel and Joseph doing exactly that, serving in the government of non-Christian or non-believing nations. And in the, in the New Testament, interestingly, in this very city of Corinth, there is a man called Erastus who was a senior figure in local government there, honoured by Paul in that role. We cannot withdraw completely then from society, just as Paul says. We must rub, rub shoulders with the wider world. How are Christians to govern then if they do get involved in government? Well, at the very least, surely, verse 10 here indicates that there should be a considerable degree of toleration for the immoral, the greedy, the swindlers and the idolaters. It's precisely what Paul is saying. Can't expect the same standards in the wider world. In the book of Acts, Luke carefully records several interactions that the early church had with Roman governors. 
And again and again it seems Paul is, is uh, sorry, Luke is, is, is writing the story up to indicate, to, to show that these governors, at least in part, were good models of government. And what they do, or what sometimes the Apostle appeals for them to do in Acts, is to be tolerant. To leave the Christians alone if they are not disturbing the general peace of society. Is that just because the Christians were a minority at that, uh, at that point? Or, uh, and, at, and at a later point, when the Christians were a majority, they should clamp down on tolerance? It doesn't seem so. It seems that the New Testament, in fact, sets out um, this principle of toleration of other beliefs and other practices within a framework of overall peace and as much justice as possible in society as its principal purpose for society. <coughs> Church history, the next point. Excuse me. I don't know if anyone can get me a bit of water, can you? Thanks, Jude. Um, church history, frankly, is a mixed bag when it comes to working out these, uh, uh, these principles. The vision has not been seen clearly in many, many eras in history. For the first three centuries, Christians were in the minority, didn't have uh, much power, and overwhelmingly you find them appealing in just the way that you find the Apostle Paul appealing in the book of Acts for tolerance and liberty. And of course the cynic will say, that's hardly surprising. That's hardly surprising. They had a vested interest in a bit of uh, tolerance. And it is very true that when in the 4th century the Emperor Constantine became a Christian and suddenly Christianity was the official um, religion of the Roman Empire, you found that it wasn't long before those principles of tolerance and and, and pluralism started to ebb away in Christian thinkers. Over the next uh, millennium, Christians became persecutors. They launched crusades. They carried out pogroms against the Jews. They uh, uh, oppressed many other minorities. They were as intolerant as any other group in history. In the 16th century, there came the Reformation when the, bar, the, the, the church once again discovered the Bible and started to read it carefully and seriously. And when they did, it's interesting, all the major reformers toyed with the idea of toleration in a pluralistic nation because they saw exactly that being worked out in embryo in the New Testament. But they were tumultuous and violent times, those, uh, those 16th century uh, times. The Germany had a, a peasants' war which was fuelled partly by, uh, by religious extremists of one sort or another. And in the end, all the major reformers concluded that, frankly, a Christian nation with a government which suppressed other faiths was a tried and tested method that uh, had been developed over the previous millennium and they needed, to, they, they needed to continue it to maintain stability. And so nations became, in Europe, became Lutheran 
or they became Anglican, or they, became, or they remained uh, uh, Roman Catholic. More or less, there was a policy still of the winner takes it all. The leading group rules and suppresses and controls others. But actually from the Reformation onwards, there were those who pursued, once again, what I am convinced is the biblical vision. They pursued the vision for a pluralist, tolerant society. At first, frankly, they were rare voices. But in the 17th and 18th centuries, in this country in, in particular, and, um, and then subsequently in America, the Baptists and other non-conformist um, groups started to become stronger and they fought for toleration. Most of them for toleration amongst different Christian groups. One of the uh, leading thinkers was, uh, was, was John Owen, for instance, Master of Christ Church. Um, um, so something good came out of Oxford um, in the past. Some of them were radical and, uh, and could see Islam on their horizons and advocated um, a toleration for Muslims within a Christian country, a completely novel idea. A man called Roger Williams was one of those. But slowly, slowly, these people who understood the distinction between church and nation or the state found a voice, a consistent, a clear voice that appealed for a pluralistic, tolerant society. And again, the, the Andrew Smiths of this world might well say, well, of course they did. They were the minority who were persecuted, weren't they? They were determined that that was a, a principled thing. But in the 19th century, for, for instance, um, the non-conformist evangelicals fought for Jews to be allowed to serve as MPs in Parliament on the principle of religious equality. Not just for themselves, but for everyone in a free society. I'm not very often partisan in public. Those of you who know me, I hope, will um, agree about that. I'm not very often partisan between evangelicals of different denominations. But just indulge me for a little bit, a little moment today. Um, I have to say that in the 19th century, um, the Anglicans vehemently opposed this vision. Anglican MP Charles Goring, for instance, quoted to John 10. We looked at it last week because it's about discipline within the church. But Charles Goring um, stood up in the House of Commons and said, this point alone, this verse alone, proved that you shouldn't allow Jews in Parliament, in the House of Commons. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the teaching of Christ, do not take him into your house. Lord Shaftesbury, who was a wonderful man, a great man, a leading evangelical Anglican layman in his day, was also opposed 
to, uh, to it. Um, uh, he he uh, said uh, during the debate, some years ago they stood for a Protestant parliament. They were perfectly right in doing so, but they were beaten. Now they stood for a Christian parliament. They would next have to stand out for a white parliament and perhaps they would have a final struggle for a male parliament. No wonder you see that secularists look back at aspects of that history and they say, don't let them through the door again. But what has been forgotten is that there were fine, biblical, evangelical, non-conformist, by and large, Christians who were fighting there for a tolerant society in the Victorian era. They were crucial in the country for many of the reforms that were so necessary in 19th century England. And I'm convinced, next point, Peter, that today that is a doctrine whose hour has come. There has not been a time when we have needed that biblical vision for society more. And if you'll just excuse me being partisan for just one more minute, we cannot expect to see that clearly articulated from our Anglican brothers and sisters in Christ. They are a mighty and massively valuable force, evangelical force, in this country and they are my deep friends and I respect them enormously but their vision for society at this point is not the same as the non-conformist, the non-Anglican vision has always been. We cannot expect them to clearly articulate that. But it seems to me it is that vision for society that we need to articulate. All I hear almost in terms of public speaking about what society should do from Christians is stemmed, is couched in terms of Let's return us to a Christian society. I I had deep sadness actually uh, a number of months ago when I saw a a black Christian lady from a Pentecostal church on on the television news campaigning on an issue in Whitehall under the banner, This is a Christian nation. And she did not know that liberties for churches like her church, the Pentecostal church, for people of her skin colour in this country, had been fought for by non-conformists who flew under a very different banner, equality for all. For the rest of our time, let me just just explain... In one issue, just, just, just to, to lay it out, in one issue, to try to help you see why this is a different vision for society, I believe a profoundly biblical vision for society, and one that we need to articulate with great clarity. The issue is the one that I actually went to speak to Andrew Smith about. It's the issue of homosexuality in the public realm. The government today has a very clear uh, winner-takes-it-all view on this. 
And as Andrew Smith told me very clearly, now that you Christians have lost the power, we are going to impose our view on you, including on churches. And to be honest, in many ways, I don't, don't blame them for having that attitude. They learned it from the Christians. But what if there was a non-conformist voice in this nation? What if, what if it actually found its, uh, if, if it found its authentic voice? What do you think the biblical vision would be for how we ought to be campaigning on the issue of homosexuality and equality? Surely there would be we would be wanting to say there, there needs to be some liberty for people to conduct themselves according to their conscience. Even though we believe homosexual practice is wrong, nevertheless we're not necessarily just going to stop it and preclude it. We need perhaps to, to think more broadly about how much damage particular um, things really do do to society. We cannot just make the nation into a big church. Paul tells us not to. I mean, suppose, for instance, a gay couple lived together all of their lives and and basically pool their resources together. Doesn't justice suggest that the that the long term partner, when uh, when one partner dies, deserves some inheritance rights? Couldn't Christians speak up for that? The government decided that adoption agencies must, by law, deal with homosexual couples. And in the process of that, threatened actually the future of the massively valuable Catholic adoption agencies. And... I pointed out to Andrew Smith and found articles by secular non-Christians which also said this. There was a perfectly simple way of them achieving the ends that they wanted to achieve, that homosexual couples should have access to adoption without infringing the liberty of conscience of the Catholic adoption agencies. All they needed to do was simply to ensure that in every area there was access to an adoption agency that uh, dealt with homosexual couples and preserved the liberty of the Catholic adoption agencies that felt in good conscience they couldn't do it. But that thinking about a balance of liberties and achieving an end without, without necessarily uh, uh, oppressing another minority that holds a view in good conscience is being eroded and lost from our public debate. Partly because the Christian heritage of that view has been lost. Oh, let me make, make it very clear. I believe that homosexual behaviour, not, not, not homosexual orientation, people don't entirely have a choice about their orientation, but homosexual behaviour is wrong from a Christian point of view. To engage in homosexual sex is a sin according to scripture. 
And as far as the church's responsibility in disciplining itself is concerned, we must take that seriously. And I also think, actually, that in the wider world, same-sex couples will have inherent problems as they try to raise children. There is ample evidence to suggest that children thrive best if they have a good, strong attachment to both a man and a woman. Inevitably, a homosexual couple there, therefore, are hindered in that. But hey, how does that hindrance compare with the thousands, millions, uh, perhaps, of single-parent households? What about the thousands upon thousands of dysfunctional, violent, heterosexual households? Let's get it in proportion. In the grand scheme of things, perhaps there are more important things to fight about, more important injustices to fight about than depriving people with whom we profoundly disagree of yet more liberties. I've written to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. Christian, this, this Christian vision for society is so important, it seems to me. Presently, secularists in the government feel themselves to be threatened by a variety of religious extremists and they make no sharp distinction between committed evangelicals and committed Muslim fundamentalists. And to be fair, I don't think we do sometimes, apart from assuring people that if, if we were in the dominant position, our domination of other people would be a little bit more benign than others. And yet the biblical vision is not that. We will never have, frankly we have never had, and we will never have a Christian nation that can somehow function as a great big church. It was never anticipated in scripture and it has never been realised in history. The church must govern itself. And Christians must be involved in seeking peace and justice and equality in a mixed and complex and difficult world. Perhaps some of you will have an opportunity to make some contribution in that. I urge you to think hard about how you make that contribution. Do not just say, because it's wrong, I want it banned. Consider your vision for wider society. We as a church, at times, will have a responsibility to, to stand up, perhaps collectively, for certain things. There will be things that in good conscience we must say, we will not do. We must be careful that whilst preserving our own conscience we don't thoughtlessly violate the dignity of human beings who have not yet found the truth of Jesus Christ.
Do you know one of the most important little stories, I think, in the Gospels is the story of the rich young ruler. And it's important in this context because of what happens at the end. Jesus, who looked on this young man and loved him, he let him walk away. Without calling down fire and judgment on him. He loved him enough to give him some freedom. Some liberty. And not simply to impose. Other religions just don't have that. As part of their agenda very often. Particularly Islam. But Jesus did. It must be the other side of that coin as we deal with the wider world. We here have accepted Christ, by and large. You may be here just looking, that's fine. But the majority of people here have accepted Christ. And we hold one another accountable to living in a way that honours Christ. But if Christ let people to walk away and honoured them in that, we have a duty as we reach out to the world, whilst they've not yet accepted Christ, to honour them and protect them within a principled pluralist framework society.